Okay, let's take our Bibles and open it to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. It's, um, it's almost sad to say that we're almost done with the book. Um, I think there's about two or three sermons left in this wonderful little book. And um, today we're going to look at Esther chapter 8 together. Before we dive in, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it. Father, I ask that those who are not yours might fear your name so that they may, might be saved. And also that those who do fear your name, that they might be comforted by your great love for them in your son. For we ask this in your name. Amen. So if Esther was a fairy tale, you might have expected the story to end at the end of chapter 7, like one commentator said. The king cancelled the decree, Mordecai took Haman's place, and they all lived happily ever after. Right, that, that would have been a nice ending at the end of where Haman is hanged, it looks like all is well, but unfortunately, that's not what happened, right? It's life is messier than that. Now, a lot has happened until at the end of chapter 7. God has reversed the fortunes of both Mordecai and Haman by using Haman's pride against him. But the first edict of Haman is still, is still there. It still looms over the head of every Jew. A lot has happened, but there's still work to be done. In chapter 8, we will see now that there will be a second edict made by one who is a Jew himself. One like the Jews is now in control, and he is going to issue an edict of salvation. So we pick up the story in verses 1 to 2. Look at verse 1 to 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told, had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Notice how the text really, really emphasizes this complete substitution that has taken place between Mordecai and Haman. The very ring that was on Haman's finger was taken off and now belongs to Mordecai. The very house which, which Haman had now belongs to Mordecai. So they have essentially swapped places. Now here I think we already have a lesson we can learn as believers. And the lesson is this, is how short-lived the wicked will prosper in this world. And also... If you're a believer, how short-lived will the righteous suffer in this world? It's but a short, short time. We are reminded of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Even if the righteous will suffer their entire lives, they will soon be comforted by God with joy beyond all imagination. And even though the wicked may prosper their entire lives in this world, soon they will be swallowed up in unspeakable pain and misery. 
There's a psalm who saw the same realities. Uh, the psalmists were very honest. They looked at the wicked and they see that they are prospering and they ask, Lord, why? Why does the wicked prosper but the righteous, righteous are those who suffer? And at the end, he came to his senses. Listen to Psalm 73, verse 16 to 20. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So, however, the lesson for you and me is don't set your eyes on this life. Look to the horizon of eternity. Let the time you have on earth be well spent. You will never have today again. Today is gone. And that's why, especially if you're young, especially if you think you have eternity on this life, right? You have to pray the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90 verse 20. He says, teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Lord, show us how short our lives really are that we might have wisdom not to waste this precious life you've given to us. But while we are on earth, there are many difficulties to face, many tribulations to endure, and even in the book of Esther, there is still a massive obstacle for them to overcome. So the first edict is still in place. So what can be done? Notice what we read next, that Esther does exactly the same thing she did. She goes unbidden, but this time she, she holds nothing back. Look at verses 3 to 6. Verses 3 to 6. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in, this, in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his sight, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Just note something. The contrast between Haman, who not so long ago was also on his knees, was also pleading, was also weeping, but he was pleading for his own life. Here we see another one who is weeping and pleading and interceding, not for his own life, but for the life of her people, for other people's lives. She is a believer in Yahweh, and she is living like God wants us to live for others, not for ourselves. Yet again, we see she's willing to lay down her life, right? If the golden scepter was not held out the second time, she would be dead. So she comes a little bit more boldly, probably encouraged by the way the king has granted her requests already. But notice her wisdom, how she asks this petition. Again, she strings it with a series of ifs in verse 5. Did you notice that? It says, if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his sight. So remember, the king has no reason to stop the edict. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about the Jews. Right, So the only basis the king would ever grant this request is if he's really pleased with Esther, his wife. 
She's not even asking him to do the right thing. She says, if I am pleasing in your sight. Because remember, Xerxes or Ahasuerus is a pagan king. He lived like the Jews lived in the times of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the king. If he's right in his own eyes, he does it. He doesn't care if people die or if people live. Therefore, she bases her request in this fact. Like, are you not pleased with me? If you really love me, if you really care for me, you would do this thing. Now, that sounds a bit like manipulation, right? But I'm going to argue, I don't think Esther is trying to manipulate the king. I think what she is doing is trying to help her husband understand her heart. So I think she's saying something like this, right? Um, listen, you think this doesn't matter. This matters. This is everything to me. How can I bear to see the, the trouble of my people? If I can put it in a modern context, it's like a husband who seems to be on his own planet. He doesn't know what's going on with his wife or what's going on with his children, right? He's just making decisions, doesn't seem to do that for the, the best of his wife or children. And a wife might say, listen, this thing is so close to my heart. If you care for me at all, this you would also care about this thing. Of course, there's a fine line there. But to say to the husband, listen, this is close to my heart. It should be close to your heart as well. Right? Now, a wife, even if her husband is a foolish husband, even if the husband makes poor choices and still doesn't take his wife into account, a wife still ultimately needs to submit and respect her husband in trust, trusting God, knowing God will even work the foolish choices of her husband for her good, right? But that's my point. My point is there is a right way to do this, and I think Esther is doing it right. Unfortunately, what Esther is asking for is to do the impossible. She's asking the king to revoke, to cancel, to do away with the first edict. But that's not how these edicts work. Look at verses 7 to 8. Then King Asuera said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So basically what he's saying is in verse 7, look, I've already helped you. Look, Haman is hanged. Almost like asking, what more do you want? Right? So this is not the best husband, not the best model of husband, but also what does he do? He shifts responsibility again. This man doesn't like to make choices, right? What, what happened when Queen Vashti didn't come? Ask his wise man, what should I do? Right? With the, the, the beauty contest, it wasn't his idea. It was his young man's idea. The first edict, that wasn't his idea. That was Haman's idea. He says, here's the ring. I don't even care who these people are. Here now, king, can you do something? Can you help us? Okay, you make a plan. <laughs> Not the best man, I would say, right? But... We shouldn't, I don't think you should criticize him too harshly. He at least gives them the authority, the ring to do something. But he's saying something like this, right? An edict written in the name of the king cannot be revoked. Listen, my hands are tied. You think of something. You make a plan. And a plan they made. Let's read verse 9 to 14. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written 
according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of, the, of King Asuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Notice how this language is almost a copy and paste of the first edict, right? To kill, to annihilate, to take their, their goods in one day. So basically, what the Jews were now allowed to do was exactly what the enemies were allowed to do to them. So basically, he was saying, you are allowed to defend yourselves. Now, I just want to say, some have read this and found the language troubling and Concerning, uncomfortable. Why would God allow the Jews to kill their enemies, women and children included? Why the word vengeance? This doesn't just seem like self-defense. It seems like something more than self-defense. You may, they may enact vengeance on their enemies. Now, two things might be said. Might be said here. First, you must see the emphasis. The emphasis is not to go and kill random people that they don't like. Rather. It, it is really to defend themselves. No one would blame me for killing the man that wants to kill my wife. Right? Nobody would say, you murderer. I'm, I'm protecting my wife. Even in the Old Testament, not all killing was considered murder. If you killed a man that broke into your house while it was dark, you are not guilty. In other words, the edict has been issued. The warning has been given. If a man wants to risk his life, his wife's life, his children's life, it's on him. It's on them for them to initiate this and them to defend themselves. In other words, this is a boxing match in which the, where a man climbs into the ring, but this time the hands of the one boxer is untied. Okay, Now the other boxer can fight back. And so if you climb in the ring, it's fair game. You must be willing to be hit. Now, that might already be enough for some, but there is a second reason to remember, a second reason why this edict was given, and, and that is the historical context. So first, we see it was a self-defense thing. Secondly, look at the historical context. The author himself reminds us of the context again in verse 3 and 5. Look at again in verse 3 and 5, reminding us exactly who Haman was. Verse 3. Esther 8 verse 3 says, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet, wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite. Look at verse 5. It says the same thing. right? And he said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, 
Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite. I don't, that's not, that's not, um, again, that's not uh, random. That's intentional by the author to remind us again of this ancient conflict between the Jews and Amalek, the Amalekites. Now, remember, who was Agag? If Haman was an Agagite, that brings us back to 1 Samuel 15, where Saul, King Saul, was commanded to go and exact God's judgment on the Amalekites. And what did he do? Instead of obeying God, he spared the best. He spared the king Agag. That's where we get the word the Agagites from. He spared the king and many others and the best of the sheep and the best of the animals. But 1 Samuel 15 also should go all the way back when the Amalekites attacked Israel unprovoked when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it was at that time that God said, I will war against Amalek from generation to generation. So God says, I'm, I'm, I'm executing judgment on these people. Now think about this. Haman and the Amalekites also knew this history. They would have known the history of Yahweh, the history of how God delivered his people, the history of, of this tension and the conflict with, with Yahweh. In other words, every single person who belonged to the Amalekites had a way of escape if they wanted to use it. They simply had to repent, join themselves to the people of God, and everyone who refuses remains under God's wrath, his judgment, willingly. Even with all the evidence, even after Haman is hanged, even after Mordecai is honored, imagine how hard your heart must be to say, I'm still going to fight. Doesn't look like God is working for them. No, I'm going to kill them. In fact, remember, Haman's wife connected the dots. She saw this. Look at back at chapter 6, verse 13. Chapter 6, verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wife, then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome. You see, even she could connect the dots. This, like the, again, like the, like the, uh, the wise men, the magicians of Pharaoh, after they copied a few false or, or a few miracles of their own. Oh, sorry. So we're just going to switch on the lights for the load shedding now. So, um, so let me just get my point back. Okay. So just like the magicians could, after a while, they, they did a few miracles, but then after a while they said, listen, this is not normal. This is not natural. We are fighting against Israel's God. Why are you not listening, Pharaoh? And it's a similar thing here, right? It's, you can see how God is working for his people, how he's defending them. And yet, people will still go and, and try to annihilate the Jews. How hard-hearted must your heart be? So the choice was simple. Either trust your false gods and die, or trust the living God, Yahweh, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who covers all our sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I read this one commentator. It was really interesting. He said, when God shows mercy, he shows mercy as if he knows no justice. And when he shows justice, he shows justice as if he knows no mercy. There's a time. There's a, there's a time of grace, and then there's a time of judgment. But again, how much time did they have to not be killed. This is God's grace. He didn't even owe them that. These people had to die yesterday. And still God gives them 
time and, and space to repent and to come to him. Almost like you and me. You should have been dead yesterday as well. And yet here you are. That you might repent and come to Christ and be saved. Now the evidence gets even clearer when we see the glory of Mordecai in the next verses. Look at the glory of Mordecai in verses 15 to 17. Chapter 8, Esther 8 verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown on his um, great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful, again, contrast between the Mordecai in chapter 4. Remember, Mordecai in chapter 4 was clothed with what? Sackcloth and ashes. Now, he's clothed with royal robes of blue and white with the great golden crown on his head. The Jews also are put in contrast, right? In chapter 4, we see there's a fourfold description of their demise. It says they were, in chapter 4 verse 3, they were mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting. Now, in verse 16, there's a fourfold blessing. They have light, Gladness, joy, and honor. Instead of fasting, there's now feasting. And there's a holiday. This is also, there's also a contrast between how the city reacted once the edict was issued. Remember how the city reacted when the first edict was, was issued? It says in chapter 3 verse 15 that the city of Susa was thrown in confusion by the edict of Haman. But now look at what happens when, when Mordecai sends out his edict in verse 17. <clears throat> verse 17 says, And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Right? So God in his wisdom has told us what would happen when the righteous rule, in Proverbs 11 verse 10, says when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. This is just common sense. Now again, consider this contrast. Chapter 4, the people of God were covered with shame, clothed in sackcloth. Now they have light and honor and gladness. For one like themselves are now in control. You see, the man who is second in charge is a Jew. And that makes all the difference, Right? It's not the enemy of the Jews who's now ruling. It is a Jew, Mordecai, in glory. Beloved, can you see the parallel here with our Savior, with the Lord Jesus himself, right? Is that not your story and my story as well? One like ourselves was also covered in shame because of our sin. On the cross, he bore our shame. He was covered with our sin and the wrath of God was poured out on him. <clears throat> but after three days, he was gloriously risen from the dead. One like us is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's a man like us. He knows us. He understands us. His crown of thorns was replaced with a crown of great, a great golden crown. And because of him, we too have light and honor and glory. 
You see, Jesus is not far removed from us and our sufferings and who we are. He has been touched with our sorrows. He has been tempted like we've been tempted. He's called the man of sorrows. He knows. He knows you better than you know you. And this man is our high priest. He is our mediator. He is our savior. He is our representative before the Father. Listen to these amazing words. Hebrews 7 verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christian, if this is your Savior, where is your joy? When the Jews could rejoice over the edict that says, my physical life will be spared, how much more are we to rejoice that God in his edict of salvation said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that your soul that is more precious than your eye, then your comfort on earth has been cleansed and you are saved forever. Where is your joy? Shall we rejoice less than the Jews who had this edict of salvation? Is God not our treasure? Is Christ not our inheritance? Do, do we not really have zero problems in comparison to what God has already done for us. It's not even your suffering a privilege for Him. Right? Now perhaps the problem is that we do not really know Him. We are not walking close to Him. We might have come to Christ out of um, wrong motives and we might stay for wrong motives. And that's why we, are, we, we don't really believe that God loves us, that God is for us, like Mordecai, right? If you were a Jew, there was no doubt that Mordecai would be for you, but many Christians don't believe that God is for them. So how can they rejoice? Now, interestingly, we see something similar at the end of verse 17. Just notice at the end of verse 17 with me. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews, had fallen on them. It's a very funny statement, really, right? It's an irony. A few chapters ago, to be a Jew was to have a death sentence over your head. You don't want to be a Jew, right? That's why Esther was tempted to hide her identity. Now, people are becoming a Jew because they are scared of dying. You see how the places have swapped again. Previously, Esther was tempted to be a fake Persian to save her life. Now, it seems people are willing to be a fake Jew to save their lives. But we should not think that all of these people that have joined them are fake converts. Some of them were true, genuine converts. Look at chapter 9, verse 27. Just, just glance over to 9, verse 27. It says, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. Those who joined them, some of them were real. They kept the Feast of Purim, right? Their, their fear was converted into joy. 
Now think about it's 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 ironic again because the Jews are celebrating as if they already won the battle, but right, nothing changed. They still need to fight. They still need to stand together. But they celebrate as if they have already won the war. Because surely many of them remembered the promises of God, especially to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3. What was the promise God made? He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Jews could have connected the dots, right? Look at what he's doing. The promised seed must still come. God in his providence made a Jew a queen. He gave Mordecai in his wisdom to write the second edict. Surely God is for us. We will overcome. This is God's kindness, love, and wisdom displayed for us. But it all depends on which side you are on, right? Are you a Jew? Or are you not? And the reality is all of us are natural Amalekites. All of us naturally have rebelled against the God we know exists. And, des- and, he- and we deserve his edict of condemnation. That can also not be revoked. But he also has written a second edict written in blood. That, this- that his own son would come to die for people like us. And because he is risen, clothed in majesty, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, because one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the choice is yours. Will you come to him? Will you submit to his lordship? Will you receive his grace? For he is a gracious king. John 3, 36 puts it plainly. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So that's your options, right? Come to the one who is in charge, who is in control, and be covered by his grace. The Passover lamb has been slaughtered on the cross, and all who are covered by his blood will be passed over from God's wrath. But... If you decide, no, I will still resist him. I will still not listen to him and bow the knee now. What does the text say? The wrath of God remains on you. But the question is, are you joining? Are you aligning yourselves with the people of God? Are you just submitting with the sole purpose just to escape his wrath, just to escape hell? In other words... You are here in this church service, in this building, but you don't really love Jesus. You don't really love other people. You only love yourself. If only you don't go to hell, you would be happy. Not like Esther, not like Paul that says, I will give up my life for others that they might be saved. Not like Jesus that sacrifices his life for others. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't think that is initially a wrong motive to come. Initially, that is good, like like we read right now. Okay, I'm just going to unplug that power cord. As we have read in Esther chapter 9, many joined. Why? Because of the fear of the Jews. So that's initially 
a good motive to come. But that cannot stay your motive. That cannot stay because 1 John 4 says, Love drives out all fear, for fear has to do with punishment. God did not send His Son to die a torturous death on the cross for you to live the rest of your life in fear of death, in fear of hell. He came to release you from the fear of death, to overcome your doubt, to overcome your fear, and swallow it up with His love for you. You see, Christ is more than fire insurance. He's more than that. He's also a great treasure, wonderful Savior. Eternal life is to know Him. He's the bread of life that satisfies the depths of your soul, the one for whom you were created. He has come that the love of the Father might be poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. So that's really the real question. Do you really know Him? Or does He know you? Do you have a relationship with Christ? So much so that you can die because you know He loves you. And I think there at the root, our problem is we don't really trust Him. Right? Now, there might be other reasons as well, but I think this is one that's come close to the root. We don't really trust his, his grace is more than our sins, or that His saving act will really cover all our sins. If, I, if you do not know me and I walk up to you with a gun in my hand, you should be scared. What am I going to do with this gun? Am I going to shoot you? Am I going to defend you? But imagine you're one of my sons. You walk behind me and you see me with a gun. Will you fear? Well, I guess it depends on what type of a father I am, right? What type of a man I am. But if I'm a good father, and if I'm willing to lay down my life for my wife and my children, why would they fear if they see a dangerous weapon in my hand? Because I am for them, not against them. Now, if you can imagine trusting a sinful man like me, why would you not trust a God who has no sin and who promises all who call on my name, I will save? You might say, but it's not that I don't trust God. It's I don't trust myself. My sins are too many. You don't know me. That's why I'm not going to make it. Well, firstly, why has it ever been based by trusting you? It's ne that's never the precondition to, to enter heaven. It's not trusting you. It's trusting Christ. And if you say, but how do I know? Here's a simple test given by Richard Baxter. One of, it's a very simple test. The sins you do, would you rather be free from them or do them? What is the, the truest, deepest root of your relationship to your sin? Would you rather be free from all sin or do you love your sin? If you would rather be free, you are a born-again Christian. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit that has changed your heart. I hate my sin. I love the Savior. I'm burdened by even the sins I love, in quotation marks, but I hate them more. You're a Christian. And if not, leave the ranks of the enemy. Leave your sin behind. And come and find life with Christ. And life to the full.
Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You are just. You are perfect. And you are also perfect in love, mercy, grace, slow to anger. And the cross is the biggest proof that we can come to you even as sinners to be saved by your grace. My Lord, again I ask that those true believers in this place, that they would be comforted by your grace. That your Holy Spirit would at this very moment witness to their spirits that they are children of God. O Lord, you have come that our joy may be full. And for the Christian, there is no greater joy than knowing that we will be with you. And those who do not know you, Lord, please draw them, humble them, lead them to repentance, give them the gift of repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Thank you for your edict of salvation, Lord, in your Son that you've given us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you rule, that you reign, that you have been exalted as head above all for your church, your bride. Lord, may we trust you and may we rejoice in your great salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.